Brethren, today is exactly the 17th anniversary of this work. We began this work precisely on December 26th, as we are here today, 17 years ago. It was back in December of 1992. And we had incorporated Mr. Don Davis and my wife and I were the three original board members. We incorporated the work a few weeks before we began to have regular church services. Many of us had come to recognize that the worldwide church had totally jumped the track, had gone into absolute heresy. I had some elders and leaders in the church wanting to encourage me, who trying to encourage me to leave one year earlier and I could have gone with them. A couple of them had quite a bit of money and were going to back us and so on. So I could have gone then. But I told them I just was not ready. I honestly was not. And I felt that I wasn't positive that we should leave yet at that time. But during that following year, they began to come out with even more doctrinal changes, a number of them. And also, of course, they called me in and showed me the absolute abhorrence they had uh, toward Mr. Armstrong, the two young smart alecks, as I lovingly call them. I won't mention their names. <laughs> and it was interesting to see what was happening. A whole series of things like that were happening. And so then I finally realized once they came out with the God Is booklet and I had time to read and digest that, that they had introduced a false God. There was no question about it. They were beginning to talk about a false God and a false Christ just as bad as the world. That's what they were going back into. And, of course, some of their closest associates told me, not just one, but two or three that I knew and knew these fellows for years, they said they want to go into back into the mainstream. They were embarrassed when they were sometimes uh, with Mr. Tkach Sr. going to the uh, Kennedy Center or the Royal Opera House in London or places like that being regarded as a cult or a sect. So they wanted to go mainstream. This was the term they were using among themselves. It was very obvious where they were headed. I'd waited for a year, thought about it, prayed about it, and fasted about it quite a number of times, frankly. Near the end, I was fasting twice a month and asking God to make it clear what to do. Well, it became very clear through a whole series of events. I've just given you some of those. I won't try to go through all those in my, in my personal life. But I'm grateful for what Christ has done. And he's used quite a number of us. Mr. and Mrs. Davis were there to help start. My wife was a wonderful help from the very beginning. And I told her, I said, Cheryl, I said, we may have to live in a trailer house for a long time. And I meant it. I didn't mean a big double trailer, uh, you know, a big uh, mobile home. I meant a little trailer house. I had lived in a little trailer house for several weeks when I first came to Ambassador College, living next to my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith while we were waiting for Mayfair, the student dormitory, to get ready for habitation. So for five or seven weeks, I lived in a trailer house, and I'd come into their house to shave and bathe, but I slept out there. And I was willing to do that, and she was too. We knew we might not have very much to, to back us or anything like that. We had to be willing to lose our salary, give up our home, do everything, and we were willing to do that and step out on faith. An awful lot of people waited and waited and waited. They wanted to wait until it was more sure, more secure. But it does take a certain degree of understanding and faith and courage to step out. And I'm grateful that quite a number of you did that in the early years, too, because some of you came within one or two years. Mr. David Crockett and his wife came with us right away. 
and he was at the first official service. The first service we had was in our home December 26th, and we had just 19 people there. The next service was down in a condominium uh, recreation room. Mr. Davis was managing that and worked it out where we could use that, and we had 42 people there. That autumn, we had 1,500 people for the Feast of Tabernacles, and we had locations in Del Mar at the Hilton Hotel in Del Mar and back in Pigeon Ford, Tennessee. And then the next uh, Feast of Tabernacles, we doubled almost precisely. We had 3,000 people, but we then did not grow more slowly because others then started other groups, and one of them kind of apologized to me when they were starting one of these big groups. He said, well, he said, Rod, he says, we're sorry, you know, we're having to start something else. And I said, well, George, his name was not George, but I have a friend, friend I had. I said, we're, we're here, we're preaching the truth. You know that. Well, we know that. I've been the Bible teacher, most of them, they knew that. And I said, well, we're, we're carrying on the work. We already have a radio program and a magazine. Well, we know that too. And I said, uh, we're, we're doing the work. And so they knew that too. But he said, well, we're just disappointed in what happened with Mr. Dukach and people are afraid of one-man government. And so they went on and on about that, became their mantra, one-man government. We can't trust God. We can't trust the living Jesus Christ to guide Moses. He was one man. We can't trust him to guide Samuel. He was one man. We can't trust him to guide David. He was one. We can't trust one-man government. And so they started all these other groups, some of which they have voting and politicking and confusion and so on. But we have a different thrust. We wanted to start out not just with the right form of government, but on the very basis of doing the work. And God has blessed us, so in all honesty, we really are doing the work more thoroughly and more powerfully than any other group on earth. And Mr. Pyle and I were talking about it. He, of course, gets the responses to the telecast. And when you include the responses to our telecast and our radio programs, where Mr. Pardinus is French and Mr. Mario Hernandez is in Spanish and other things like that, we have about 17 times more responses than these other leading groups or the other one actually has uh, when you include new people and reaching the outside world. So we're grateful for that. I'm not just trying to brag. I think we need to be thankful once in a while for what God is doing and not apologize about it. But at any rate, we are having an increasing impact all over the world. And Mr. Ames mentioned that in the announcements that the impact that we're having, and as you know, for the Feast of Tabernacles this year, we had over 8,000 people, when you include the stay-at-home people, who asked for tapes and were wanting in their, in their behavior that way to hear our tapes, and since they couldn't get out, to keep the feast with us. So that brought us up over 8,000, and we're very grateful for that. So we've had a history, but I want to go kind of an overview type of sermon today, because I think it is a special occasion, and I hope we can all take it that way, and all of you young people and others among you can have a good time at the dance tonight and, and even you old people. I don't like old people. I think you all know that. <laughs> I am one. <laughs> anyway, so we all want to have a good time at the dance and all the other activities, but I hope we can kind of think of this as a special occasion and kind of, kind of take stock of where we are. Brethren, where have we been? Where have we been and where are we headed? And I hope all of you older brethren can think about that, and some of you are younger, and I hope you can think that. I hope we will begin to have far, far more young people as time goes on. A lot of you don't remember, 
what some of us regard as the good old days back in the 50s and 60s and early 70s before the church began to jump the track so much. But we need to understand our legacy, our heritage, and why we're here and where we're headed. Turn with me, if you would, brethren, back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to turn, first of all, to Matthew 16, and most of you know exactly where I'm headed in Matthew 16. I'm going to begin in verse 15. The disciples were talking about Christ, who he was and who people said he was. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and I think we've explained many times, but in case you don't have this in your mental notes or your understanding, write it down, prove it, check it up. Christ said, you are Petros, the Greek word. Look it up in an interlinear or concordance, whatever. They all know that, not some doctrine of ours. You are P-E-T-R-O-S, as it would be in the English language. Petros, which means a small stone or pebble. That's what it means, a, sto a small stone or a pebble. You have a rock-like quality, which Peter did. And on this rock, suddenly he uses a different word. If he met Peter, he wouldn't do that. But he uses a different form of the same word. But Petra, P-E-T-R-A, meaning a large, uh, massive stone or, or rock mountain or stone foundation, like you'd say the rock of Gibraltar or something like that. Upon this massive rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, meaning the grave, shall not prevail against it. The grave will never prevail against God's church. God lets people die. God lets people be martyred. But the ultimate reward for all of us, if we hang in there and overcome, is the resurrection from the dead. Secondly, there are two meanings, I think, here, really. Secondly, God would never let his church be completely wiped out. There was always going to be a church until Christ comes again. So the church would never be wiped out. Hades would never prevail against it. But on this rock, I will build my church. I, not Martin Luther, he built the Lutheran church. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build. Christ did build a church. I will build. The church had to be built. I will build my church. It's not the church of England. It's not the church of Luther. It's not some other human church. It's Christ's church. And it's the church of God. And Christ is God. And it's called the church of God, as you know, 12 times in the New Testament. I will build my church. And the Greek word here is ekklesia. And it can be E-C-C -C or E-K-K, -K, really more the Greek form, L-E-S-I-A, uh, ecclesia. We get our ecclesiastical terms from that, meaning having to do with the church and so on. It means a group of people. And it could be mean a crowd of football uh, fans together or any number of things, but it's the church of God. It's the group of God. It's the people of God. I will build my church. Christ did intend that there be a church. He did not intend that his people stay at home and just try to worship God at home and do their own thing, frankly. You look all the way through the New Testament and you see how much God had them meet together and how they did meet together and how that was God's will. 
I think most of us know that or we wouldn't be here, but, you know, we have loved ones and friends, some of us, who've been so hurt and turned off and confused since the massive apostasy and worldwide, some of them just stay home and do nothing. Others have gone back to the Protestant world. They've gone here, gone there. They're all mixed up in their head. They don't know where they're headed. But we do know where we're headed. And we're living near the end of an age and people, things are really speeding up. And we, as the people of God, should really understand that. And I try to explain to people sometimes, brethren, I know that some of you are new and some of you younger people will listen to different ones. Oral Roberts just died the other day, but he would talk about Bible prophecy sometimes. And Jerry Falwell would talk about Bible prophecy and Christ might come next year or he might come tonight. Billy Graham has said repeatedly, Christ may come tonight. I have it in writing and I heard him say that twice in person. Mr. Party and I went to hear Billy Graham up in... Uh, Santa Barbara. Remember that long drive, Mr. Party? We drove up to Santa Barbara to hear him in person way back in 1959, I think it was. And he said that. And then over in England or in uh, Germany, and uh, he said that over there uh, where I got to hear him in, in Berlin, West Berlin with Ernest Martin. And he and I were there. And I wanted to somehow see how he would handle it in this foreign setting. And there he said it again. Christ may come, or will, may come tonight. But then he always said, well, it may be the beginning of that great human experience and he might not come for a thousand years. You have that in writing in his column. And that's quite a stretch. Tonight or a thousand years. <laughs> it gives you quite a bit of flexibility there, right? <laughs> Think about it. That shows how uncertain they are. And Tim LaHaye and all these other people that write these booklets and novels and left-behind stuff, they have no idea. They don't know when Christ is coming, and they don't know how. They think we're just going to be wafted off to heaven, and an airline pilot, the, the plane will start veering like because the pilot just grabbed out of the window by Christ in the, in, the, in the rapture. And, of course, that's really silly. But they have those ideas that have no basis in the Bible whatsoever. But we do understand, brethren... We really do, and it's happening. And I've said that again and again, but I want you young people to recognize Mr. Armstrong was the only one, and we've had, Mr. Ames has had, and I've had in articles there in print, quotations from Mr. Armstrong back in 1951, 2, 3, 4, 6, 9, saying that, you know, Germany would rise up. There would be United States of Europe saying later that the Eastern European nations would break free. And Poland and Czechoslovakia and East Germany would break free even when they had thousands of Russian tanks and hundreds of thousands of soldiers there and many thought they would never get out. He said the Berlin Wall would come down. It did come down. Point after point. I heard him say personally in England back in 54 that the, he said if you British people don't really repent and return to the God of the Bible, he said the British Empire will be no more. And he said it just like that. He shouted it. And louder than I am, because he was a younger man then than I am today, and his voice was powerful. Some of those people didn't like that. And the uh, custodian came up afterward at one of the halls, I forgot which one, I think it was in Scotland, and kind of got in his face, and like he was going to hit him or yell at him, and I came right up, kind of looked aggressive, you know, and I'm not that big, but I used to be a boxer, and I thought, well, he won't get very far. <laughs> he starts in on Mr. Armstrong, too bad for him. But I just uh, wasn't going to kill him. I might have made him, give him a headache. Anyway, I, I felt protected because this guy was really acting very abusive in his talk and very threatening. Some of them didn't like that. And uh, 
he was very powerful. He didn't pull his punches. The British Empire will be no more. And he said, you are going to lose some of the sea gates. Now, I've studied it since, and many of us have, and I'm certainly not the only one, but tried to name a number of them. But he would only name two or three, you know, Gibraltar and Suez. But he did name Gibraltar and Suez and and, uh, some others. And, of course, Suez is already gone. And all the sea gates, when you look at the eight or ten major sea gates all over the world, they've all been taken away from American Britain except Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands. Those are the only ones left of which I'm aware. Some of you know others, you tell me. About five or six are already gone. The Panama Canal is gone. Suez is gone. The Baba El Mandeb, the, the southern entrance to the Red Sea. Suez is the northern. The Baba El Mandeb is gone. And the Strait of Malacca is gone. The Strait of Hormuz is gone, through which 70% of the Middle East oil passes. And if you read these news items, often they'll talk about that Strait of Hormuz. A lot of people used to say, what's that? Well, they're beginning to realize what that is. That's where our oil comes from. It's very important. And Britain used to control it. They don't control it anymore. These things are important. You young people need to recognize there's one church on this earth that taught that and understood that and has been talking about this specifically for 15, 25, 55, 60 years. This is the end of my 60th year in the church. I was baptized 60 years ago, about a week ago. So I've been around. I've seen these things happen in front of my eyes, right in front of my eyes. I'm excited about prophecy. I've seen this waiting and waiting, and now all of a sudden it's just happening, and yet I find a lot of people don't really recognize how important it is. They're not little tiny if-buts type of things. They're specific, huge things happening to the major nations of this earth. And this church has understood it, the church of God that guided Mr. Armstrong to revive, just like we have had to revive it since his death and the apostasy. And we're carrying on in that same spirit, as you all know, brethren. So we need to be thankful that we have that opportunity. So the church was started by Jesus Christ, but it was scattered, as we know, and the apostles warned of that over. Paul said, you know, as he talked to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, go look it up. He said, I know that even some of you will rise up and turn aside and take many after them. He knew that was going to happen. That did happen. And the church was scattered all through the dark ages. So we then had the people like the Polisians and the Henricians and Albigensians and then the Waldensians under Peter Waldo. And then you come down to little scattered people in Britain and coming gradually over to America who were Sabbath keepers. Some like Stephen Mumford, who apparently was a Sabbath keeper. And others kept the church of God name going. And then some of them moved west to Michigan and down to Missouri. And they had their Sardis headquarters right in my home state in Stanbury, Missouri, just up north of Kansas City. And I never heard of them. And I never would have heard of them, probably, even to this day, except I came to Ambassador College and Mr. Armstrong told me there was such a thing because they were not doing the work. They were spiritually dead. But God raised up Mr. Armstrong, so the church came right down through men like Stephen Mumford and others since then, right down through men like Jacob Brinkerhoff, A.N. Duggar, and then Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and now it's coming down through us today. And we here in this room and around the world have a very, very fine team of dedicated men to carry on this work. 
And as I've said, and I want all of you to understand this, this is the church of God. This is the final church that's going to no doubt finish the work. And whether I live on and finish it or not, we don't know. We don't know, but don't you worry about that part of it. And I'm glad to have your prayers, but it's not Rod's church, it's God's church. You better figure that out, <laughs> and I hope you will. I hope you will. We have extremely dedicated and loyal men like Mr. Richard Ames and Dr. Winnell and Mr. Apartian. Mr. Apartian has been one of my friends now for over 50 years and been loyal to the truth. We have men like Mr. Crockett, who is here today and one of the pioneer members in the global and living church of God. And we have other very fine men all around the world in our council of elders, Mr. Hernandez and, of course, Mr. Uh, uh, Bruce Tyler down in, in uh, Australia, directing the whole work in all of Australasia. And we have Mr. Rod King over in England. And we have many, many other fine men on our Council of Elders, as you know, all over this earth. We have younger men coming along, very dedicated men like Mr. Rod McNair, who led the singing. And we might not like his crazy jokes, but he, he led the singing okay. <laughs> anyway, no, they were, they were just fine. <clears throat> Better than mine. I don't usually tell jokes very much. I just make crazy remarks that you laugh at. <laughs> anyway, we have Rod McNair and Jonathan McNair. Every now and then when I'm talking to Jonathan up in, he lives up in New York, as you know, I say, well, Jonathan, you better, you better get in shape because I've got Rod on a special weightlifting program and we're going to give him some karate instruction and he's going to take care of you. And somehow Jonathan never seems too worried about it, but he, he I, I, I kid these brothers in that way. But we have, of course, other wonderful younger men coming along, such as Charles O'Gwen and Scott Winnale and uh, many, many others. I better not name... Well, we have Wally Smith. I should name him because he's on the telecast. And others that are fine young men coming along. Many, many of them. And we're very, very grateful for that. Christ is going to use this work, the work of the church of God, the work of the living church of God, if we keep on our present course. We have to say that, of course, but I think we will. I think we've got men now that are not trying to get ready to overthrow me or run off and start something else. I'm not saying none of our leaders will ever run off, but I think a lot of them have been tried and tested for decades now, and I think we're heading toward the final wind-up. Mr. Armstrong said, Brethren, he said, uh, it, it, you know, it's, uh, we're, we've had the, uh, the gun lap. He said, we're on the gun lap. And some of you don't know what the gun lap is. I do because I ran the mile. That was my main uh, sport in high school. I played football, but I was one of the smallest. And I only got to play about a third of the time. I was a main substitute, and, and, uh, but I didn't play as much as the other because I was smaller and couldn't see. Coach Kaminsky called me twice at tight. He said, well, Rod, he said, you can't see to. You don't know who you're trying to tackle, do you? And I kind of went like that because <laughs> I was very nearsighted <laughs> in that hind or two. But then uh, I, I boxed and I did okay because you have a bright light, you know, and you're, you're right close to your, your opponent. You can see him okay. But I wasn't really built for boxing. I was slender and have a slender jaw and my skin cut easily. But I was built pretty good for the mile. So I used to say, if I can't outfight him, I can outrun him, you see. So uh, whatever. It seemed to work so far for almost 80 years. Anyway, you see, I talk in, 
in macho terms, don't I? That's terrible. I get old, I still can't help it because I grew up thinking that way. I grew up in a mining town, you know, where that was that was what everyone talked about. When you came into the neighborhood, you had to fight the big guy and, and you had to do this and do that. So you, you learned to think that way to take care of yourself or you were in trouble. Anyhow, we have to step out with faith and do God's work. And we do have some very loyal men to carry on so I don't want any of you to think things would fold if something happened to me or happened to Mr. Ames or any of the rest of us. This is the church of God and Jesus Christ is the living head of that church. That church has come right down to us. So we need to have that perspective and you young people need to have that perspective. It didn't just start 17 years ago. It started 2,000 years ago and there's a wonderful history of it. Mr. Ogwen had a wonderful booklet, God's Church Through the Ages. And we have a very fine book that a man has now come with us. He used to be with one of the other groups. It's either Ivor or Ivor Fletcher. I'll have to call him someday. He's with us now. And he wrote this book on the true church, the history of the true church of God, whatever it's called, a very fine book. It's even more thorough. Mr. Gwen did wonderfully, but he was just writing a booklet that we could afford to publish. This man has a book that goes 250 or 300 pages and he's even going to add to it and bring it up to date now that he's come with the living church of God for this past year or two. So we're grateful to have him with us. It really goes into detail. And I once he gets it up to date, I'll recommend it. He's not in it for the profit at all. And, and uh, we could, a lot of you would like to read that book. But it tells the details of God's church down through the ages, how there have always been people who kept the Sabbath, called themselves church of God, kept the 14th day Passover and some of the other holy days in many cases, but not all of them because they didn't know. A lot of them, as you know, these churches back in the Middle Ages, they didn't even have complete Bibles. The publishing hadn't even been invented yet. They didn't have complete Bibles. How could they know everything? They acted on what they knew. And so they, we have the record of all that and we're the continuation of that church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, brethren, the church has come down to us more recently through Mr. Herbert Armstrong, as you know. I want to turn now to back to Revelation. Let's turn to Revelation, if you would, and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and he's been describing the previous ages or eras with the church of God of the apostles called the Ephesian era, and then that terrible time right after it when the church was under terrible persecution and people were being tortured, and that was the Smyrna era, and then you had the two big eras during the Dark Ages, Pergamos and Thyatira, and then you get down to chapter 3, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. This is a group of people that came along just before Mr. Armstrong. They aren't evil people, there are many thousands of them left. They are sort of a historical church. They've kept the Sabbath. They know about the kingdom of God on earth. Mr. Armstrong learned a lot of the basic things from them, which he himself said over and over again in the early years. He learned about the Sabbath. He learned about unclean meats. He learned about the kingdom of God was here on earth from them, not up in heaven. He learned about heaven, hell, immortality of the soul uh, from that church. But they refused to grow. They would not accept the holy days, they would not accept 
the fact that we were the descendants of Israel, that is the British and American peoples, which is the key to understanding about 90% of end time prophecy, and they didn't have fire in their belly. They did not have that. Mr. Armstrong had that passion to get this message around the world. And so they never did, and most of them are never heard of. As I said, I grew up right in Missouri, right in the same state. And I was president of the junior college luncheon club where we were discussing world news and things like that. And we were reading all the newspapers and talking, have meetings. No one ever mentioned such a thing. I read widely in those days. Never heard of them. And most of you would never have heard of them except for this church, except for the true church of God and the church that God is using to do his work. So it says you have a name. Yes, they're called church of God. They're alive, but you are dead be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that, you're, that are ready to die. It's kind of pitiful. They remain, but they're ready to die. Just think about each one of those phrases. It's really kind of bad. For I have not found your works perfect before God. So he goes on and shows how a few of them have white garments and they'll be in the resurrection. A few. Most of them have not really been converted. I've been to their services 10 or 15 times when Mr. Armstrong uh, encouraged uh, Owen Smith and uh, some of you know Mr. Uh, Herm Ken Herman, our registrar, uh, we were up in Oregon the summer of 1950, he said, well, he said, why don't you fellows attend the Scrabble Hill Church up there? He knew where we were going to work and we didn't have a, a good car. He said, I know you can't drive down to Eugene or up in Portland. It'd be probably too long. He says, you could attend the Scrabble Hill Church. He said, that's the Seventh-day Church of God. We know they're Sardis. He said, you won't bother them, but he said, they might bother, no, he said, they won't bother you, but he said, you might bother them a little bit, and he kind of chuckled, and when uh, Owen Smith and Ken Herman and I walked in, Owen and I were just 18 or 19-year-old boys, and Ken Herman was maybe a 27-year-old young awkward bachelor, and we walked in, but we were wearing suits and ties. I think I had on my $27 suit or something. We all bought cheap suits and had, so we had something to wear. So we showed up, and the, the minister was really nervous. He thought, Armstrong's men have come to take over. And, uh, you know, we weren't ready to take over anything. But after a while, they, you know, they realized we were there, and they were friendly. What did they talk about? Boy, it's happening. Prophecy's happening. We've got to change our lives. We're going to become members of God's family. No, they talked to, uh, Joel, uh, how, how, how's the crops doing? And they got, got enough rain over where you are and what's the amount of money. And they go on and on about all the local stuff. They had no world vision, no big world view of God working out a big purpose. And they still don't. So that's the era into which Mr. Armstrong came. And God guided him to come out of that and to form and be the leader of, we know by the fruits of what we call, the, and God calls, the Philadelphia era. So down in verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Well, as I've explained before, brethren, have an article, and I'm going to write a whole booklet on it someday. I'd better get at that. It talks about, it has to do with church government. It has to do with the right kind of government, the key of David. What's the whole kingdom of God about? The kingdom of God is government. Kingdom means government. You have the key of David. You have right government. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. 
I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door. And whenever you find that term used in the Bible, if you want to write some notes here, it's found back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. It's found in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9. And it's found in Colossians 4, 3. Colossians 4 and verse 3. And I think other places, I just scribbled these in here. It has always to do a door, meaning an entrance, an opportunity to preach the truth. So God opened the door of radio. He opened the door of publishing. And he opened the door of personal evangelistic campaigns all over to Mr. Armstrong. And he went through those doors and built a very powerful work that got up finally where we had 150,000 people attending. And we had churches all over the earth we had three colleges, one in Pasadena, California, one in East Texas, a place called Big Sandy, one just outside London, England, near Brickett Wood, a small town in the, in, the, in the Green Belt. They call it outside London, England. We also had fine offices with nice facilities in London, England, and Dusseldorf, and, and in Bonn, Germany. And we had a nice office in South Africa, which I visited, another fine office, which I visited down in, in Australia and in the Philippines and up in Vancouver, British Columbia and all over the world, plus the wonderful office we had in Pasadena, California. And at one point we had over three or about 3,000 people meeting every Sabbath on the campus. We had about 1,200 meeting in the afternoon auditorium and about six or nine hundred in the morning and then another several hundred in imperial a.m. and the imperial gymnasium and more in the afternoon and then the spanish church all together we had a whole bunch of people meeting there right on the campus so it was growing and we did have an impact and time magazine had an article talk about herbert w armstrong thunders his message around the world and he wasn't the only one they wrote about, but it shows people did begin to know we were there. But then they turned aside after his death, and all that came apart. And they got in there with a wrecking crew, and they wrecked everything. And it really hurt me because Mr. Aparting and I and others of us who were there in those days, that was a great deal of our life. That was my whole life, frankly, for, for ever since I was a 19-year-old boy. I didn't build that work. Christ built it. And Mr. Armstrong said that. He said, Herbert Armstrong built nothing. He said, Jesus Christ built this work. But he did build it more through Mr. Herbert Armstrong than any other man without question. And we honor that. No one questions that that I know. And I certainly do not. He was like a second father to me and taught me so many things. But early students like Dr. Herman Hay and I did help him build it a very great deal. And that was our life. He turned over the whole theology section to us. Oh, he taught all the Bible courses. And he, he turned the magazines over to us. And we were the editors. Look it up. In the late 40s and especially early 50s for the Good News and Plain Truth magazine and so on. And we were the ones doing that. He called us his right-hand men. In fact, these guys around here are always appointing themselves uh, Elijah. And uh, I, no, not Elijah. I mean, the two witnesses. Now, I've been one of the two witnesses, I think, three times now. <laughs> and uh, Some of them said, well, Herman and Rod are the two witnesses because Mr. Armstrong said we were his right-hand men. And, but then Dick and Ted came along, and then, no, it must be Dick and Ted. And then Dick died, and then that didn't work out, and then later Ted left, and that didn't work out, and so on. 
So we need to let God pick his own two witnesses. Then when we first started this work, they thought several said, well, it's Raymond McNair and Rod Meredith. They must be the two witnesses. And then that didn't work out with Raymond. And then Dick Ames came along and he became the other presenter because he had a very wonderful ability to do the television program and still does. And so then he and I are now the two witnesses, apparently, in the way some people look at it. But we're really not. And we don't claim that at all, as you know. I think he agrees every bit as much as I do that God will Christ have to pick his own two witnesses. They'll probably be a lot younger and a lot better looking, by the way. <laughs> we'll have two witnesses that will charge up and down the streets of Jerusalem. I don't think us old men are going to do that. Anyway, God will take care of it. We have to have faith and trust in God. And I'll tell you, brethren, if there's any one thing I remember, there's so many things, but one special thing Mr. Armstrong radiated and that was faith. He did have that. He had faith in God. And he just you just knew he trusted God no matter what. And I think we've lost a lot of that. And we've got to get that back again. And another thing he constantly radiated and talks about, not in a bragging way, I don't mean that. He didn't say it over and over, but I heard him say it four or five times through the years. He said, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes. And he says, I know that. But he said, I've always tried to be faithful to the word of God. And he did, even when it hurt. It hurt him, I know, to have to admit he was wrong on divorce and remarriage and the way we handled that. It hurt him to admit we'd been wrong on pounding Pentecost. That was not easy. He'd gotten into it with various ones. He did not accept their argument because they would come at him in a wrong spirit. And sometimes part of their argument was wrong and he'd see the wrong part. And because they came in a wrong spirit, he didn't try to look too carefully at the right part, I guess. But he could see the wrong spirit there. And But finally, one of our men came to him and very humbly and patiently over and over. Then he did see it. And he did change. And the whole church changed. And where any of us would come to him like that, he would change. He wanted to follow God's word no matter what. And that's something that's got to personify the way we are too, brethren, to follow God's word no matter what. So let's understand that. Let's be that way. We are that church. And we've got to keep right on in that spirit and in that way. So he goes on here then in this uh, prophecy. He says, I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. For you have a little strength. Well, you better believe we have a little strength. We're very, very small. We know that. We don't have any big handsome superstars with great booming voices and so on like Ted Armstrong and others in the past. We have little strength. You have kept my word. That's the next thing, though. Mr. Armstrong did do that. And I know that Mr. Ames and, and uh, I better stop there and all the rest without starting down the list here, but we do want to do that, to keep God's word and have not denied my name that God's name means God's authority and that has to do with government too when you really understand it indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie I will indeed make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you these outside churches, I don't mean churches of God groups. This might include some of them, but I really don't think it does primarily. I'm not talking about that. I think it just means these people that call themselves Christians, you know, or Sunday keepers, and, but they think they're the spiritual Jews, and they're not. They lie. 
because they do not keep God's commandments. And they will come to finally realize there was a little church that kept God's word and God was using right while they were alive to give the final witness to this world just before the very end. And they're later going to have to worship us if we are faithful and overcome and make it into the kingdom of God where we will be members of the God family. So it's not just a figure of speech. They will worship us once we are God. We will be members of the God family. So anyway, this is what it's talking about, this work that we are part of at this time, and that's where we've been and where we are. Now what, brethren, what lies ahead? I wanted to give you a few overall big-picture things on prophecy just to kind of help all of us think through because, again, many of you are new, and we have young people here this special occasion. Let's kind of review the overall where we've been and where we're going. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 11, if you would, at this point. Daniel, back in your Old Testament of Scripture, of course, Christ quoted the book of Daniel as Scripture. It was inspired of God. And he certainly referred to it in that way. Back in the book of Daniel, and I'm going to turn to chapter 11, and coming down to verse 31 If you read this whole long chapter, this is the longest single prophecy in the Bible, continuously, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, and you come down to that point, and he's talking here uh, about this coming uh, man. There had been an earlier one called Antiochus Epiphanes, and now we come down to the final Antiochus Epiphanes, or the final dictator, and he won't. I sometimes call him Hitler, brethren, and that may be a mistake, He's going to be like Hitler in one way, but the Bible indicates he'll probably be much more sophisticated. He'll be much more personable. He'll win people by his personality. He won't just crush, you know, he won't have his big panzer divisions coming in to crush the Dutch and the Danes and the Belgians and the French and crush them and take them over. You know, it says there in Revelation chapter 17, they will give their power to the beast for a short time. They're not overwhelmed by military force. He, he sometimes woos them into that. So he's going to be a very clever individual, very manipulative. But he then shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, brethren, you have to have daily sacrifices going on in order to have them taken away. They have to be there at the time of the end. I'll come back to that later. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong. says he shall corrupt with flattery. Again, he's a very clever individual. Hitler didn't do much of that politicking, but this next leader in Europe, probably a German, we don't know that for sure, but he will be very clever. And he will be pretty good at winning people over and politicking. It'll sound good. Oh, I love you. And if we all work together, we can make Europe a better place. And gradually we'll make the whole world a better place. And we will have a world government that will solve the problems of the world. And most of the great leaders of the world, humanly, they, they know that, brethren. They recognize this world needs government. And I've been preaching on that more recently, as some of you know, and even on the television. That's what Christ tells us to preach, the coming kingdom or government of God. It's a government. The world needs it badly. But the thing of it is, they can't do it. 
they don't know how to do it and they're going to do it the wrong way. It needs Christ here to govern the world in the right way and those of us helping him will be filled with and led by his spirit but we will be under his personal direction. The mistakes I might make or Mr. Ames or Dr. Vanale or Mr. Pardon or any of us might make today, we won't make then because Christ will be right there directing us. So it will be basically a perfect government and we will have the right kind of government. But this man will come in very cleverly and he will uh, cause them to take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Remember how Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24, I think it was verse uh, uh, 15. So this is what is going to happen at that time. Then he says, and those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And I want you to think about that. Who are those people? Somewhere at the time of the end, there is going to be a remnant of the true church of God. It's not going to be the Sardis church that is dead. And then you go on later in Revelation, he describes the Laodicean church. He says he will spit them out of his mouth and indicates he'll spit them into the great tribulation. They are nice people. He doesn't condemn them for doctrinal error, but they are lukewarm. They're lukewarm. They don't have that fire in their belly to get out and warn the world and warn our people Israel of what's about to happen. They're just not, it's not, if it depended on them, it would never get done. Somewhere on earth is a people that is carrying on the historical church of God and that's teaching the commandments of God, the way of God, the right use of government and understanding that and practicing that, preparing a people for God to be those kings and priests and doing the work of God. And somehow these people will be here at the time of the end. The people that know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Who will those people be? Well, brethren, they'd better be us. We had better be the ones that do that because we have the best opportunity. We're in the best organization to be able to do that because of our background and the way we're organized and the whole purpose and thrust of this organization from the beginning. And those are the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they'll fall by sword, flame, and captivity and plundering. We're going to do the work. But are you strong enough? Think, are you personally strong enough to go through tribulation and get beat up or thrown in jail? That may happen to some of us before it's all over. You need to think, where am I spiritually? Am I just wanting to attend church? You know, no, you'd better go beyond that. You'd better be sure there is a personal God. You'd better be sure that Christ is your living head and living his life in you. And you have to have the faith and the courage to give your life to God as a living sacrifice, hopefully, and if necessary, as a dead sacrifice, as many of God's people have had to do. Think about it now. Don't wait till it's too late. So many will fall in this tribulation this persecution now when they fall they shall be aided with a little help but many shall join them by intrigue at the very time of the end a lot of people probably will start to come among us just to save their hides others will come because they maybe want to get in and upset us from the inside and take us over 
And Satan will use people like that as well. And some of those of understanding shall fall, see, even some of God's people at the time of the end, to refine them. God is testing you. He's testing me every day of our lives to refine them, to purge them, and to make them white until the time of the end. So it does come down to the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. So we've got to examine ourselves. Are we ourselves ready to go through all this? Can we catch the vision and do that work of doing great exploits of reaching the whole world with this message? And will we be willing to go through the trials and tests necessary to be that people? Do you catch the vision? And will you give your life to do that? Each one of us has to do that. Now, beginning in verse 36, I'm just going to skim some of this. Then it talks about this coming king. He, of course, will be the final dictator, as I call him. But he's not going to be as much like Hitler as, as like Machiavelli. He's going to be very clever politically and win people. And he's going to do according to his own will and magnify himself above every god. He's going to present himself as a god and worship himself just like the false prophet will present himself as a god and worship himself. Both of them have that terrible ego and vanity. Verse 37, he'll regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women. Apparently the Catholic church the, and, and so on, the great whore. But in their place, verse 38, he'll honor a god of fortresses. His whole interest is in building military power. He wants power. and He'll build just awesome armies. And you have all kinds of special helicopter gunships and, and missiles and atomic weapons and chemical weapons and biological weapons and maybe even big space mirrors that can reflect the sun and burn people. All kinds of things they've talked about but haven't done yet. He'll have that. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god and he shall advance and he'll divide the land for gain. He's going to share his spoils with these other kings that come with him. At the time of the end, so again it comes back, this is all at the time of the end rather than in the next 5 to 15 years just ahead of us. Could be a little longer, but I don't think so. But I'll, I'll set, put that general term out there, about 5 to 15 years. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Now, one misguided man who calls himself a prophet and a lot of other strange things he does, he keeps saying that Iran is, is the king of the south. Iran is not the king of the south. Just get any map of the world. Iran is northeast of Jerusalem. And nearly all Bible scholars understand that in using directions, it talks about from Jerusalem. Iran is not the king of the south. Another thing you, brethren, need to realize if you ever meet these people who have been confused by that man, that everything indicates it will be an Arab group, and the Iranians are not Arabs. They are the descendants of the, of the Persians. That's who the Iranians are. They're the Persians, and other scriptures talk about them. They're not going to be in the king of the south at all. But this king of the south attacks or provokes in some way the king of the north who is the final revival of the Roman Empire, we know. How are they going to do that? Any number of ways. Our favorite guess, it's just a guess, is they'll cut off the oil. They'll do something to, to, to provoke them. And then this coming Hitler is going to swooping down like a whirlwind, which is kind of picturesque, say, because you think about what Hitler called his own 
uh, air force and armies. They called Hitler's forces had the Blitzkrieg, meant lightning war. And so that they will have that. The German-led United States of Europe will come down powerfully. And, of course, they're much more technologically advanced in Europe than the Arab world always have been, always will be. They're going to come down like a whirlwind and go through that whole area. So that's what's going to happen. Then in verse chapter 12, at that time, not some other time, but at that time, Michael shall stand up. This great super archangel, this cherub, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Apparently, Gabriel is one of the two righteous cherubs. The third one, you know, was named Lucifer who turned aside and became Satan. And he took his third with him, apparently. Really ought to warn us. The Bible indicates he apparently took them all or virtually all. Wow, he's pretty powerful. One third of the angels went with him. The other two thirds, one third under Michael and another under Gabriel, remained faithful apparently. And Gabriel is one who is there to give the message about Christ's birth and personal warnings and personal messages. But Michael's the one who's assigned to watch over God's chosen people, Israel. So Michael, the great prince, stands up who watches over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation to that time. But we know there's only one time like that. That is the great tribulation spoken of back in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7 and spoken of in Matthew 24, verse 21, and so on. So that is what is going to happen at that time. And we're going to have a terrible problem because this coming beast power will be attacking us during those last days. And Michael will be fighting for us at that point to protect us from utter destruction, although we're certainly going to go into captivity, as we've explained. So all these things are going to begin to come together as we have taught you for so many years. So what lies just ahead now of, of that? Let's turn now to Matthew, if you would. Let's turn to Matthew uh, chapter 24. Matthew 24 and beginning in verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples asked, Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, Take heed that no man deceives you and start talking about false prophets. So we know that is the first thing to happen. False religion was to rise and deceive the masses. Not a few people, but many. And then he says, You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, for a nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Well, as we've explained, the original nation comes from ethnos. It means small groups or even ethnic groups like different tribes in Africa are fighting each other. Different tribes in Asia are fighting one another and so forth. There will be ethnic wars and world wars all over more than there ever have been at the time of the end. And that's what's beginning to happen right now in front of our eyes. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now, brethren, as you know, and if you don't know, I won't turn to all these scriptures today for lack of time, but back in Amos, if you turn back to the book of Amos in chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, you will find there that he's talking about Israel and he shows there will be too much rain in one city and not enough rain in another city. So you have alternating drought and floods. You have hurricanes hitting Florida, hurricanes and tsunamis hitting Southeast Asia. This is not merely the 
17th anniversary of the living, global living work of God. This is the fifth anniversary to the very day of the terrible tsunami that hit Southeast Asia five years ago today. Some of you heard that on the radio this morning and took over 230,000 lives. About a huge number of people, almost a quarter of a million lives. One of the greatest catastrophes of modern times. Well, you say that was way back five years ago, but brethren, as God looks at time, that's pretty recent. So these things are going to begin to happen more and more frequently and more and more powerfully. And remember, as you read these things, I, in my mind, have made a mistake because I have tended to sometimes apply that to us too much. He doesn't say it's going to hit America. He just says these things will happen. These things are happening all over the world today. They had another great earthquake out in Indonesia, I think it was, over six points or series of them. And they're having them all around the ring of fire. They have not yet got to America yet. But they're going, moving around that so-called ring of fire, which goes all up around from Japan and Western Asia, up through the Indonesian area, and around through Australia and New Zealand, and around through South America, Chile, and so on, right down through uh, southern Mexico and California and so on. It's called the Ring of Fire because there's so many volcanoes, extinct volcanoes, most of them, but the potential uh, for earthquakes, and historically there have been more earthquakes there. That is going to start shaking and they're getting closer and closer to us. You watch. God says that will happen. Jesus Christ said that would happen. So we ought to realize it's not just something that... Uh, uh, you know, it was way off somewhere. Some strange prophet said, Christ himself said that. So there will be famines. And I started to bring it, but we were sent something from Mr. Allgaier up in New York, one of our faithful uh, ministers up there, very dedicated. And he found this article on the coming food shortage, which seemed very authoritative, but we want to check it out more thoroughly to be sure how authoritative it is. But he had all kinds of facts and figures. And it certainly indicated that he says this year, that is this very next year, 2010, we're going to experience very serious food shortages. Now, many of these guys who predict these things are right, but they're one or two or three years early. <laughs> See, so we don't know, but it's going to happen. And apparently the, the uh, lack of production from the farmers because of the drought in certain areas and too much rain and storms in other areas and all kinds of things. There's a great buildup of food shortages. So he describes that in detail, but that is going to happen. You're going to have in the near future, and I want again you young people to recognize it's our lives. It doesn't talk about what's going to happen over in China or somewhere. It's going to happen right here too. The Bible shows it's going to come on Israel specifically later as we've explained. So we are going to have false prophets. We're going to have ethnic wars and world wars. Then we're going to have tremendous lack of moisture. And when you have that, what do you have? You have these range fires and forest fires, raging fires here and there. They had all through Southern California, even in the last year, parts of Arizona and Air Colorado, all over the West, just going up in fire. Millions and countless millions of beautiful forest land has gone up more than ever before, just in the last few years. Famines and fires, then alternating floods with hurricanes and so on. And then what does that lead to? Starvation. That leads to genuine food shortages and starvation. And you know the scriptures. God describes that specifically. So we need to realize that these things are on the way. 
At the same time, God says the alien, and he's talking to Israel, is going to rise up, and you're going to come down low. Let's turn back, and you should read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 on both of these, but I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 28 on this specific one. He's talking here in the first few verses of Deuteronomy 28. If you diligently set your heart to obey the commandments of God, he says, I'll set you on high above all the nations of the earth and you'll be blessed and I'll cause your enemies to be defeated before you. And, you know, it says in there down in verse 12, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow and the eternal will make you the head, verse 13, and not the tail. He's going to bless you in every way. Did he ever do that? Well, of course he's done that. For the last 150 years, it's been that way here in America. We loaned money to the other nations. We were the head and not the tail. But we have turned aside from our God. And even on the radio and the television, as as you know, and I don't watch these wild shows. I've never seen uh, Siner or... I better not try to even can't even remember all their names. Seinfeld and and these other wild shows. I've never seen one of those, but they go on and on. I understand about sex and and, and serial uh, adulteries and one thing and the other and various of these shows all through. And I notice even on the decent news that I see, they're beginning to use cuss words more and more, and they're beginning to make fun of God. They just make fun of God. That's all you can say using God's name chiefly cheaply and throwing out the words that are in a very cheap, vulgar, irreverent way. They don't care about God. The fear of God is not in their eyes anymore. So you've turned aside from God, he says. If you do not obey the voice of God and His commandments and statutes, all these curses will come upon you. Cursed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land. And the Eternal will send cursing and confusion and all that you set your hand to do until you're destroyed. Verse 20. Think about that. And all that you do, we're going to be in trouble financially. We're going to be in trouble in the food we have. We're going to be in trouble in disease epidemics. We're going to be in trouble in every possible way. That is beginning to happen, brethren. That never happened before to the United States and the British peoples and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. But it is starting to happen now the last few years and it's going to get much much worse if i'm wrong then we'll have 10 or 15 years of great prosperity but i'm telling you on christ's authority that is not going to happen you're not going to have 10 or 15 more years of great prosperity we're near the end and the things are going to get worse so then he talks about the terrible fevers and diseases you'll get and uh, he says verse 25 i think is kind of interesting the eternal will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way and flee seven ways. That start hasn't started yet. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. That part is beginning to happen in a sense because we borrowed money from them and we can't repay. And President Obama's out promising this and promising that and he doesn't deliver. And then he said, we're going to sit down with all these dictators and that isn't working out. They had a whole fox new special on that last night which was very interesting and so on so these things are beginning to happen and he says then in verse 42 locusts shall consume all your trees and your produce our food's going to be eaten up verse 43 the alien these are non-americans living in our midst 
the alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher and you shall come down lower and lower. And I don't want any of you who are of a different background to feel we're preaching against you. I'm preaching against, I'm preaching what God says. That's the main thing. But the, why is this coming? Because people are bad. Are the Germans bad? Do we hate the Germans because they're going to be the leading ones to attack us? No. Some of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard about what the Nazis did and what the Germans are going to do and how efficient they are at doing it were given by Dr. Herman L. Hay, who was German and bragged he was German on both sides of his family. His whole family went back, were German professors and so on. He gave powerful sermons on that in detail. And he understood. Why is this coming? Because the Germans are bad or the Mexicans are bad. They may take over the Southwest because other people are bad. The blacks are bad because they may take over certain things. No, it's because we are bad. That is the United States and British descended Israelites. We are turning away from God and God is bringing us down and he's going to use Germans and Italians and Russians and Chinese and Mexicans and you name it to do it. They are his servants. You look in the Old Testament, he says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, my servant Pharaoh, he says. God uses different people to do his will. But these aliens will rise higher and higher and you shall come down lower and lower. And that is already happening big time. And I hope we can recognize that without me going into detail. He shall lend to you these aliens and foreign nations too, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, be the head of various things in our government and all through our nations, and you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed. Because why? Because they're bad? No. Because you are bad. Because you did not obey the voice of the eternal your God to keep his commandments, statutes, which he commanded you. That's why they're coming, brethren. And we as a nation need to really repent. And we need to give as much of this as we can on the television programs to the whole world and get to the edge of the cliff but hope we don't get kicked off the stations. We have to be a little more careful of what we put on television. I think you know that. But we in God's church need to realize when you young people seeing the whole face of the United States change and everything is different, everything is different, you wonder why. Well, this is why it's prophesied. And this church has taught that for a long time. And it's the only church that's taught that. So what are we going to have? Number one, we're going to have false prophets and false religion in great detail in the future. We're going to have number two, we're going to have increasing ethnic strife and wars. Number three, we're going to have famines, fires, floods, and starvation. Number four, we're going to have aliens getting higher and higher and us who are the descendants of Israel coming down lower and lower. And then you come here to uh, uh, Matthew 24. Let's go back there again. Matthew 24, verse 9. And without me just saying it, let's read some of it. Picked up where we left off. Matthew 24, we come down through verse 7. Now read verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows, right after the earthquakes, powerful earthquakes, huge earthquakes, as, as, uh, as uh, Luke's account shows. They, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. There will be a martyrdom of saints at the very end too. 
And get this, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. How can this little church be hated by all nations? Are we hated by all nations now? No. Why? Do they love what we preach? No. But they don't even know that we exist. You've got to know that someone exists before you hate them. <laughs> so what does it tell us here indirectly? It tells us that somehow this church, if we keep on, someone like us, I think it's going to be us. It better be us. We'll do great exploits. We will powerfully preach the message of the coming government of God based on God's laws. We will have to warn our people Israel and give the Ezekiel warning described back in chapter 33 of Ezekiel and help people be warned that this is going to happen unless we turn back to God and there's a massive genuine national repentance such as we have never had and help them wake up. Is that going to make us popular? No. You will be hated by all nations. So we do need to understand that and that is a big, big thing that is going to happen. All right, turn back to Revelation chapter 12, if you would, at this point. Revelation, and let's go at this point to Revelation and to chapter 12. I'm going to just give you an overview. You notice at the beginning here, he talks about the woman clothed with the sun, and she brought forth a man-child to rule all nations, and then, the, then the, he was killed and went up to heaven. And then in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness. So the church had to flee to safety. And in verse 7, war broke out. And frankly, brethren, that's the final war that leads right up to Christ's coming, if you read this whole thing, this chapter carefully. It's talking about a war. Again, this false prophet I talked about a minute ago, he says that war's already taken place. That war has not taken place. When that war takes, takes place... You're going to have so many horrible things happening all over the world that you can't believe it. It'd be quite a different world, even more than now, much more. But the war breaks out, and as you see, Satan the devil has cast back down to earth. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying in verse 10, Now salvation strength, the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. The time just before Christ's coming. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Therefore rejoice, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. When he comes down in this final time, you're going to see more terrible, strange people being tortured and killed in odd ways and you're going to see these dictators, these leaders in Europe, I mean, become more dictatorial and powerful and have that look in their eye. It's going to be a different, a horrible time, frankly. He has a short time and then he persecutes the woman full blast now and the woman, verse 14, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place. Not up in heaven. Heaven is never called a wilderness. They're not raptured off to heaven like Tim LaHaye tries to pretend. There is a place on this earth. And they're taken to that place on this earth into the wilderness where she is nourished for a time, time, and half a time. And nearly all scholars recognize that must be a three and a half year period. That's the three and a half year period of the Great Tribulation. And the church is protected. Which church is protected? Do you want to be part of the church that is protected from the great tribulation? Just think about it. 
And down near the end, it says in verse 17, the dragon was enraged and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That is the ones that were not protected, that were left behind. Yeah, we could have our own books about the left behind people. <laughs> the ones that are left behind. And he wants to make war with them and who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Christ. Are they all pagans? No, they're church of God people, but they were not people that had fire in their belly. They were not true Philadelphians. Some of them call themselves Philadelphians and are not. Each one of you in this room, and I do too, I could still fall away. Any one of us could fall away. We know that. We have got to determine to be real Philadelphian, brethren. We've got to determine to go all out for our God. We've got to determine to be among those that are taken to the place of safety and honor God. We need to be those that are spoken of here back in Revelation 3. So let's turn back there briefly one more time. Revelation 3, and it says here, beginning in verse 10, we'd come up to that before. Because you've kept my command to persevere. How have we persevered? We've persevered through all these trials and tests. But also, brethren, we have persevered in keeping the commandments of God and the way of God taught us already through God's servant, Mr. Armstrong. And we're persevering in the basic truths and not watering them down, not following any apostasy. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. This must be the great tribulation to test those who dwell on the earth. It's going to test them all. Behold, I come quickly. When this happens, you really are on the gun lap. It's going to be within about three and a half years when it begins. I come quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no one take your crown. Don't let anyone get your crown. Don't get lazy and lukewarm. Don't get your feelings hurt about some little thing. Don't do it. Get the big picture. Determine to give your life to God and get completely off the fence. Get clear in the middle of God's church or get out in a sense. I'm not telling you to get out, but I'm just saying eventually every one of us has got to decide to get with God or to get off the fence. If you get on the fence, frankly, you're going to fall back in the world. That's the way it always works. God doesn't want fence sitters. They will not be in the place of safety. They will not be in God's kingdom. You need to get right in the center of where Christ is working with all your mind and heart and soul and give your life to God. So that's what God wants. So he says then, verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, a strong support in the very family of God, in the very government of God, in the very temple of God, even the new Jerusalem throughout all eternity. And he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God. Everything that means is part of the God family and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, God's Spirit is speaking here, what God's Spirit says to the churches. So brethren, we are blessed. We really are blessed. We can have a wonderful meeting here in peace with people that love us and we basically all love one another, can have a wonderful evening together. The nation is still basically at peace. But in the next several years and probably beginning in two or three years, you're going to see things change even faster than they are now. The nation will never be the same again. These things are going to impact one right after the other. Let's get ready. Let's be 
Philadelphians, let's go all out, not fit sitters, because we have a wonderful, magnificent calling. We have a magnificent heritage, and we need to really understand and appreciate that. So, brethren, let us joyously respond to Jesus Christ in every way to let him live his life in us and to make our calling and our election sure as future members of the very kingdom of God, the government of God over this earth, and the very family, the very family of God, for God really is our daddy, our father, and we walk with him, we talk with him, we commune with him, and the spirit beings, we will fellowship with him and with Jesus and with the spirits of just men made perfect forever. That is our calling. There's nothing more important, nothing more exciting, nothing more meaningful. So let's go all out for what really counts.